So I'd like today to go back to the psalm that we read together. I haven't preached from, actually from a psalm for ages in St. Columbus, and it's a bad omission. So it's nice today to go back to a couple of psalms to uh, look at these psalms and learn from them what we can learn uh, as we recognize them as part of God's Word and take them uh, for ourselves. Uh, as I said in the prayer, I was at a wedding on Friday, uh, Ali Meredith and Alan Stewart, that was in uh, Inverness, and uh, hope to be at one marrying um, Kirsten McGilvery and uh, Abe Abioye on uh, Friday, again, uh, in the same church in Inverness. So I guess weddings are on my mind uh, a little bit uh, in one way or another. And this is a royal wedding song, a good song uh, to sing at a wedding. And uh, it is uh, attributed to... Uh, the, one of the sons of Korah, or of the sons of Korah. Uh, so it's not a Davidic psalm. It wasn't written by David. Uh, many of them were. We call them the Psalms of David, but they weren't all written by David. Uh, but this one was written by one of the sons of Korah. We don't know which wedding that he was uh, penning his words to. We know that he was given great inspiration under God, but we don't have a record of which specifics, uh, specific uh, wedding, royal wedding, he uh, was writing for. Some, many commentators uh, think it may have been one of Solomon's uh, weddings. He had a few. Uh, but I'm not sure if that's true or not. Uh, we don't have clear indication of who it was from. Others believe that this wasn't actually written specifically for any particular sa- uh, wedding, but was just uh, given by God hugely under inspiration and is a purely messianic pointing forward to Jesus Christ. It's probably somewhere uh, in between these two things. But clearly it does establish uh, within the Old Testament that idea of the coming Messiah who is seen as a son of David, who is seen as a king, a Messiah king figure in the future, um, as a groom and God's people, uh, his own people, those who came and uh, put their trust and who followed this Messiah King, uh, seen as uh, his bride. So there's this great, you know, they're far more um, used to illustration and picture in their, in their, in their culture in the ancient Near East than, than we were. And they would strongly use this, these great pictures to, to speak of truth and to speak of truth that was to happen indeed in the future. But we, we know that there was this, even in the Old Testament, this picture that the Messiah who would come, the, who we know as Jesus, because we're looking at it, obviously, uh, with the benefit of the New Testament, the Messiah who would come would be the groom, and uh, his people uh, would be his bride. And, you know, Isaiah 62 speaks about that as a young man marries him in kind of nice, um, uh, gentle uh, language is a young man marries a maiden, so your uh, sons will marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so your God will rejoice over you. So there's this picture of God rejoicing over his people in the same way that a groom would rejoice over his bride. Or in Hosea 2.19, that amazing picture of faithfulness and adultery and uh, covenantal truth and, and uh, forgiveness. Uh, God says, I will betroth you to me forever in righteousness, in justice, in love, and in compassion. So there's that great kind of same language of covenantal 
faithfulness of God and uh, some of the language of truth, humility, and righteousness that we have in verse 4 here of the kind of relationship he has with his people. And part of that, and I think sometimes we we lose sight of this, is why why did God use marriage as a picture or, or the wedding feast, particularly the wedding feast and the marriage as it is described in the psalm and elsewhere. And as Jesus uses it in the New Testament, uh, and uh, is such a, a, and so much favor of, of, of using that picture and that illustration. And indeed, it goes on to speak about in Revelation, the wedding feast of the Lamb that heaven's described as that great celebration, that we are with Jesus Christ in his heaven, and it's like a wedding feast. Uh, why does he use that? Well, I think primarily because of the themes of love, uh, covenant, commitment, and yes, joy, love, and celebration. Now, maybe we've lost sight of that a little bit. Maybe we're a bit joyless in our Christian faith and in our expression of that. A bit lifeless, a bit dead uh, in the way we live our Christian lives because, you know, we're in difficult times. We're in that time where Christ has come once for his bride to save them at the cross and he will come again to take us to be with him. But we're in that difficult period of betrothal in between. And it's tough, and it's a struggle, and it's a battle. And there's sin, and there's problems. And sometimes we get, just get weighed down by that, but we need to be reminded that it's a celebration, and that there is joy involved, and that there is happiness because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. And that's to be our perspective. And that's to be part of what we are and what we do. And that's to be reflected in our coming together. It's to be reflected in our worship. It's to be reflected in... Uh, our community is to be reflected in our praise, it's to be reflected in the way we listen and then the way we live our lives and the way we interact with one another. Celebration and joy. And I think that is hugely uh, significant for us. And I hope that some of that comes across as we look through the psalm uh, briefly. And, it, you know, we went through the, the, uh, the procedure that the wedding uh, event uh, took place in the Old Testament, and that is why it's different from ours. There was this legal betrothal. That's why, for example, that Joseph and Mary um, talks about uh, Joseph wanting to divorce her quietly because they were betrothed to one another, but they weren't actually married. So, it was, but it was such a legal binding kind of relationship. Although they weren't living and sleeping together, uh, it needed a divorce to in that separation. And, and so that, that is part of the similarity uh, between what we have here. It also makes a little bit more sense of the parable of the wise and foolish virgins that uh, Jesus speaks about in the New Testament uh, because it's kind of different from our uh, weddings. So that's the background to the psalm. And we know and we can be confident that this psalm is messianic. It points forward to, uh, with this great Old Testament pictures uh, Uh, pointing forward to the relationship between God and his people, uh, because part of this psalm is quoted in Hebrews chapter 1. Now, you may remember or may not remember that we studied Hebrews and went through this book not terribly long ago. We started at Hebrews chapter 1, which was great, wasn't it? We started at the beginning. Uh, Hebrews chapter 1, and when we have the writer to the Hebrews under inspiration of God, quoting the superior superiority of Jesus. You remember that, don't you, about Hebrews? It was all about how superior Jesus was to the Old Testament and to the, old, 
the Old Testament religion, which the new Christians were being tempted to go back into. And so the first chapter of Hebrews is speaking about how superior Jesus is to, to anything. And uh, we have this quote that the writer gives from God. He says, to which of the angels did God ever say? And then he quotes, but about the Son, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. Do you remember that? Do you remember we stopped at that for quite a while? Because here was God speaking and saying of Jesus, your throne, O God. So God, the Father, was speaking about Jesus, the Son, and attributing to him divinity, O God. So your throne, O God, will last forever and ever, and righteousness will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the joy uh, of oil. With the oil of joy, sorry. And then it's got a little letter beside it. And if you go to the bottom of the page, it says, verse 9, Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7. Verses 6 and 7. So you've got the New Testament quoting this psalm, which is speaking about the king, about the Messiah, and attributing it to God, attributing it to Jesus. So it's clearly uh, with this New Testament uh, authority, speaking of uh, not just a king in uh, the ancient Near East, but also speaking of God. And it's on that basis that we move forward. And it's pointing us into the future as well. And that's great. So at the beginning of this psalm, we've got the psalmist... um, One of the sons, of course, in my heart is stirred by a noble theme as I recite my verses for the king. My tongue is the pen of a skillful writer. He's given, God-given words. This is a messianic psalm. It's a psalm that is inspired by God. It's to be used for the praise of God's people in the Old Testament and throughout uh, the church of of God. And uh, it is uh, inspired in a unique way by God to be part of Scripture. And his own senses are excited uh, and uh, refreshed. And his heart is stirred by the message that he's been given as he speaks about the beauty of the king and the love of the king and the character of the king for his people. And my heart is stirred by a noble message. It's a great, it's a great introduction, isn't it? And I think, isn't it very easy for us to forget that as Christians? By the message of the gospel and by the character of our God, and by the good news and the joy and the celebration that is to be linked to our Christianity, very often we're going to, oh, our mouths facing the other way, or kind of down the way, sad and or just filled with today's burdens and problems and the miseries and the pressures and the difficulties and the struggles. And they're very real. No one's denying that. It's just as real for me as for anybody else. So easy for me to forget. So easy. But all of us need to remind ourselves and be challenged uh, by this heartwarming, stirring message of the character of and the love of God and the commitment of God to us. We can sometimes be academic and we can sometimes be cerebral about our understanding of the Bible or we can sometimes just be completely disinterested. But we pray, and I hope all of you pray, and I pray that we will be moved by the wonder of our God. And by the wonder of Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior, and by the future hope that he has for us. We mustn't just grasp onto what happened in the past at Calvary, however important that is, significant it is. But it's only, it's, it's part of an unfinished story. 
Because Jesus has come once to betroth us, as it were. And he will return again to take us into uh, this wedding feast, this celebration, into his presence, closer presence forevermore. And so the reminder is for us to allow our hearts to be stirred by that. Now, it's pretty cold in here this morning. It's quite hard to be get your heart stirred. And it's kind of cold and the building looks austere. But just try. Just imagine. And... Uh, uh, think spiritually about the message in the person of Jesus Christ because we have a description here in this psalm very briefly that I'll go into of uh, the king and it's uh, verses you know kind of two to nine were the ones that where the, the king is coming you know he's betrothed his bride and he's coming to take her to be with him and uh, it's a great picture of his character as we, we, we think of it moving forward to the wedding feast of the lamb and to uh, our life in heaven with him in nearer company with him forever um, uh, we are reminded of the character of God uh, he's the one he's the, we're told here you're the most excellent of men and your lips have been anointed with grace since God has blessed you forever and there's this sense of the excellence of Jesus who is the Messiah King this messianic psalm uh, the blessing of his character and also the blessing of his words. You know, it was said of him in John 6, uh, 68, who was it by? By Peter. You have the words of eternal life. Isn't that great? The words of eternal life. You know, how, how many words are, do we spill? How, many, how much rubbish do we speak? How worthless and weightless are so much of what we say about one another or to one another. And here is this great redeemer. This great messianic king whose uh, words, uh, lips have been anointed with grace. Who have got great words, the words of eternal life for us. You know, whoever, who are we listening to today? Who will, who will be listening to? I think most of the time we, we spend listening to ourselves and making ourselves supreme. And yet he wants us to recognize his great character and his great grace-filled words that are blessed for us. His invitations to come to him. His invitations to uh, be forgiven. His invitations to be transformed. He's a, a loving God. And it's good, you know, it's good to read the Bible every day. Of course it's good to read the Bible every day because it's the words of eternal life. It's the words of God. They're great words to know and to recognize. And then in kind of verses 3 to 5, it spokes, speaks about this character of God and his mission who comes as a victorious king with his sword guard in his size, clothed with, with um, splendor and majesty. He rides forth victoriously on behalf of truth, humility, and right, his right hand displays awesome deeds and uh, speaks about his defeating of the king's enemies. And so there's this great sense, this great picture of God who has been already victorious and is coming to uh, take his bride to be with himself because he has defeated all her enemies. And we recognize and know and understand and appreciate that about Jesus. It might not seem like that for us, but that's why we go back constantly to the cross and the resurrection and the ascension and Pentecost because it all speaks to us of what Jesus has already done of the victory that he's achieved against not physical enemies. You know, we don't look at a chapter like this 
and uh, gird our sword and go out and fight ISIS. Like we have physical enemies. Because we know the New Testament teaches that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual powers. And it tells us that the sword that we use is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. It's a spiritual battle that we're in. And that God has won the victory for us on the cross. And so there's this picture of God that we need to hold on to. Because the danger is that our view of Jesus is this kind of spineless, irrelevant, rather impotent, and powerless figure of the past. Because we don't see him today, and he doesn't hit the first item on the news agenda, and he isn't involved in what we see as the day-to-day battles of life that we see. But that's why we keep living by faith and keeping going back to this God who has already won the victory for us in Christ. A spiritual victory against what? Against death and against sin, and against the grave. And he has won that victory for us in Christ. And that is uh, a great picture of the one who has ridden forth victoriously on behalf of truth, humility, and righteousness. And we see and know that for what he's already done. But we also see that he has a future and a destiny in verses 6 and 7. We have this amazing... This is what reminds us that this isn't just a, a royal psalm that was written just for uh, ancient kings, because it goes on to speak about this king in terms of being divine. Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be a scepter of your kingdom. You're, you love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, you've got to set you above your companion, anointing you with oil, and so on. And uh, we have that great picture of his everlasting kingdom. Now, we belong to that kingdom as Christians. I know it might not seem like that for us, but uh, we know that he has made a kingdom and he is making a home for us. Uh, And it's going to be a a place where we will move from this world in which we live with its battle and with its struggle and with its remaining sin. And we will go into his presence Uh, at that great future heavenly home where there will be no more sin and as Revelation describes, no more tears and no more death and no more separation and no more night and no more darkness and no more division. And he speaks about that kingdom here as his kingdom, this everlasting kingdom. It will be a place of righteousness and a place of grace where wickedness will utterly have been dealt with entirely forever. And it will be a feast. It will be a celebration. It will be a joy. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine a place like that? It, it's a picture. We're not going to be all around a table. There's going to be too many of us. But it's a picture of a place that has all the good things of this life without any of the bad things. But more than that, has the king there. You know, the king who is on his throne will be there. Uh, in all his glory and in all his greatness. And we are to think on that and to consider that because we are his church, we are his people, and we will be, as he says, there's a fly just desperately to attack my notes. You will not have them fly. Uh, And uh, 
these, um, this picture of the king, uh, sorry, picture of the church, daughters of kings are among your honor. At your right hand is the royal bride in gold of Ophir. That's the picture that he gives of the church. Um, his bride, spoken of a lot in the New Testament uh, as well, you know, this great picture of who we are. And uh, we are at his right hand there uh, with him, never to be separated from him, with no more battles, uh, not in that betrothal period with all its tensions, which I'll mention just before we close, uh, but uh, close to him at his side. And that's the picture of the Christian and the church, the people of God, every, all the Christians together in the future uh, with him. Now, it's an important perspective because you'll not feel like that tomorrow. You'll not feel like that when you're going into the workplace. You'll not feel like that when you get a letter uh, telling you how much you owe. You'll not feel like that when uh, someone treats you badly uh, or, or treats you bitterly or treats you unfairly or unjustly. But that's a reality. That's our foundation. That's what we hold on to. And briefly, can we just speak about the bride here that's spoken of in 10 to 15, his betrothed that's mentioned here? There's wise words, isn't there, from the counselor in verses 10 and 12. Whoever it is, maybe it's a bridesmaid or something, you know, bridesmaids have that important job of keeping the bride calm before the wedding and the best man for the, in our tradition anyway. He says, or she says, listen, O daughter, consider and give ear. Forget your people and your father's house. King is enthralled by your beauty. Honor him, for he's your Lord. The daughter of Tyre will come to you with a gift. Men of wealth will seek your favor. Listen. Listen. Wise words of the counselor. The bride is tense. The king is in waiting. And he's about to come. Maybe she's lost in doubts and in last minute fears. Will he come? Will I be the right kind of queen for him? Will it last? And spiritually, we have the same doubts and fears, don't we? Can I really follow Jesus? Will I be able to stick with him? Will he stick with me? I love sinful things more than I love Jesus. How can that be? Will he just reject me? What is it going to be like? What about all the problems what about my friends who ask me questions that I can never answer? Questions about evil and questions about uh, heart's desires and questions about life that I can't answer. Well, the encouragement is to listen to the words of God and remind ourselves who he is and put our faith and trust in him. We have to forget our past. We have to forget the sins that we hold on to. And we have to mentally make that decision. You know, it, it, it sounds, with this picture, you know, kind of, maybe it's the way it's written, it sounds a little bit, you know, forget your people in your father's house. It didn't really mean forget them. It just means forget that you are now under their responsibility and you've moved to the responsibility of another. And that's part of the vows of marriage, isn't it? You're vowing exclusivity to the one person. You've moved from a different relationship and you're moving into a new one. Suddenly you forget your family. But you couldn't come into the marriage and say, well, can, can I have dad and mum in the same room with us all the time? And can I have a previous boyfriend coming and living with us or a previous girlfriend? Can we just have a threesome? Can it all be just happy together with lots of backdated relationships and, and lifestyles and marriages? We, we couldn't do that, could we? There's that exclusivity between a man and a woman when they come together in marriage. And uh, 
you know, forsaking all others, we say in the vows. As long as we both shall live, forsaking all others. That is the vow of exclusivity because that's how marriage and that's how relationship works at that level. And we have to forget what's gone before at that level. And so spiritually, when we come to Christ, we cling to him. We forget what's gone before. We forget our sins and our failures and our abilities. And we stick to him. And we, we continue to stick by him. And we don't look back and we don't seek to look back. That's the mentality we need to have. I'm not saying we always achieve that, but we seek to do that. And we seek to do that because we are reminded that he is enthralled by us. A king is enthralled by your beauty. Is that not a remarkable thing? That God is enthralled by his people, by his church. Why? Because we're covered in the righteousness of Jesus. He sees his beloved son. When he sees his church, when he sees you and me, that's what he sees. He sees Jesus the substitute, Jesus the saviour. Jesus, his beloved son, in whom he is well pleased. And he is enthralled by our beauty. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word to present her to himself as a radiant church without spot or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless. That's the, he's enthralled by our beauty uh, because we are covered. In his righteousness, it's a great picture. It's that reminder of the, the parable. As well. It was in Jesus' mind, wasn't it, when he t- talks about the, the, the wedding banquet parable. And there's, there's someone comes into that wedding banquet and they're not wearing the wedding clothes. And, you know, they say, well, what are you doing? You're not wearing the wedding clothes. What are you doing? And he's cast out. And it, again, seems quite a harsh when you think of it. It seems quite a harsh picture. But the reality is that the wedding clothes had been provided. The wedding clothes were all provided in that wedding. And everyone could wear the, these wedding clothes that had been provided. But this person chose not to. He said, nah, I'm not going to wear what's been provided. These beautiful garments that have been provided. I'm just going to wear my own scabby clothes, my jeans, my t-shirt. That I've done all the painting of the house in. I can't be bothered changing. What I've got is good enough. And so it doesn't seem so harsh when, when we see it in that light, when the provision has been made. So Jesus has made the provision for us to be saved. He's made the provision for us to be clean and to be righteous, to be perfect in his sight, to be forgiven, to be beautiful. And he he comes and he also changes our own heart as he does so. Honor him, verse 11, for he is your Lord. I ask you to do that today if you're a Christian. Honor him, for he's your Lord. I ask you to go out into your workplace this week and honor him. He's your Lord. Honor him with your words. Honor him with your actions. Honor him with your obedience. Honor him with your loyalty. Honor him because he's Lord. He's worthy and he's worth it. And he's beautiful and he's enthralled by us. Hard though it may seem to believe that he's enthralled by us when we look in the mirror and we look into the mirror of our hearts and see the sin and the ugliness and the way we let him down. But he's enthralled by us because he forgives us and he sees not us. He sees Jesus, his own son who died in our place and who took the price for our sins. Honor him. He is worthy. Worship him. We worship him here, but this isn't the one hour of worship for the week and then we do what we want. This is the public declaration of our love for him together, but then we go from here. Honor him and worship him with your life. You know, be living sacrifices, he says. Give, present your bodies living sacrifices because he's worth it. So when the struggles you'll face this week, honor him. In the good times, honor him. When you can't see him, honor him. 
When you think he's far away, honor him because he's worth it. When you don't feel him close or sense his love and everything seems like it's honor him because he's enthralled by your beauty and he has this great future for you and he's taking you to be with himself. Heaven will be a great place. And he finishes with that saying, therefore the nations will praise you forever and ever and uh, his memory will be perpetuated throughout the nations. Tell and praise. His honor is there. We might not feel it today sometimes. We live in a nation which has by and large rejected Jesus Christ. Uh, Our churches are half empty. Uh, But we mustn't think that that's the picture worldwide. And we must recognize that God, we believe God will still work here. And we'll bring many people and turn the city upside down. But we also believe and know and remember that there are many people telling and praising him throughout the world today. Hundreds of thousands uh, are telling and praising about Jesus Christ in this world. Hundreds of thousands are coming to Christ in different parts of the world today uh, because they are seeing this King of Kings and recognizing what he has done. And their lives are being transformed, sometimes under great persecution. Uh, and under great difficulty, but they love this king, and the future means a great deal to them because of the battles and struggles here. This future of the king returning, taking them to be with himself in heaven. It's also a great hope for all of us uh, in our lives, and it's the only hope that uh, takes us through this life, and it also uh, takes us through the valley of the shadow of death, which we will all face. Uh, It becomes a door into this glorious banqueting hall, for Christians, but it also is a backdoor to darkness and separation for those who will not come to Christ or who will not see their need of Christ being the way, the truth, and the life, who will not make him Lord and who will not honor him in their lives. It's very solemn, uh, but it's also very joyful because he wants us as his people to share this message of celebration and joy with all into whom we come into contact and remember that any who come to Jesus will will in no wise be cast out. Let's bow our heads and thank him for his gospel. Lord, we thank you for your gospel. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for this picture from the Old Testament right long before you were born uh, as uh, uh, the son of of man, as the the baby in the manger, uh, born into humanity, but always... uh, living in glory but Lord long before you came among us and long before the people knew this Messiah uh, who even when he came confused their expectations and often you confuse ours we want uh, a God and a saviour on our own uh, terms so often forgive us Lord when we don't trust you forgive us when we don't uh, believe as we ought, and when we go our own way, uh, believing uh, our own ideas. So help us, Lord, to honor you, help us to praise you, help us to give thanks for you and for your wonderful uh, salvation and for your grace and for the presence of your Holy Spirit in our lives and for the transforming power that he has in our lives and for us. And may the grace of God Uh, transform us daily fill us with your spirit today speak to us from your word and bless us as we sing together uh, part of the psalm now 
for Jesus' sake. Amen.